I want to talk this morning about I, one of the things that I think is oftentimes one of the toughest things in life. And it's simply living with unfulfilled desires. To experience desire is a normal part of life. Uh, desires are not bad things, they're actually good things. They can motivate us, they can uh, inspire us, they can move us to action. I mean, if we live a life simply filled with apathy, we would not get anything done. We would do very little. Some desires can be good, like the desire to help someone in need. Some desires can be bad when we want something that is not ours, but someone else's. Some desires are, are simply the result of being human, like the desire for food or friendship or love. But unfulfilled desires can haunt us. Proverbs says that a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what the, the proverb is telling us that is that these unfulfilled desires can crush our spirits. They can take over our lives. They can cast a shadow over everything we do. They can become an obsession and at times lead to all kinds of damage. So the question is really simple this morning. What do we do when we want what we cannot have? I want you to take a moment of self-reflection and just do a little evaluation in your own mind and heart. What are some of the things that make that list for you? What are some of the things you want but you cannot have? Maybe there are things that you've never even told others about. Aristotle said, I uh, count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is over self. How do you get the best of your desires before your desires get the best of you? I think it's something we all wrestle with. We've been looking at the stories in Genesis, and last week, um, we began, Larry looked at Jacob. We're going to continue looking at, at, at Jacob this morning. You'll remember Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons. One is Esau. He's the older son. Jacob is the younger. Jacob comes out of the womb, grasping at his brother's heel. Jacob's name means deceiver, the sneaky one, and that's exactly what he is. He is always scheming, always deceiving. He tricked his brother out of his birthright. He uh, sneakily got the blessing that was meant for Esau. He got it for himself through uh, deceiving his father. And after that happens, his brother Esau wants to kill him. So Rebekah, who loves Jacob, sends him away. One, to save his life, but two, so that he can find a wife. Jacob heads north, far north, to a place called Haran, because in Haran lives Laban, who is the brother of Rebekah. It's where Rebekah is from. And when he's there, he meets Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah. 
Last week, Larry looked at the journey that Jacob was on, and on that journey, you remember, he has this encounter with God. He sees this stairway going up to heaven, and descending and ascending are these angels, and in the midst of that, there's this theophany where he meets God himself, and that's a transformative moment for Jacob. We pick up the story just a bit later. And I want you to notice something from the very start about the story we're going to look at. It is filled with people who have unfulfilled desires. In the story, everyone wants something, and typically it's something that they cannot have, but somebody else does. Jacob wants Rachel, but he gets Leah at least for a while. Leah wants Jacob, but she only gets kids. Rachel wants kids, but for the longest time only gets Jacob. Everybody wants something they cannot have. Now there are two parts to this story. Yes, what I'm going to do this morning is kind of work our way through this story and then come back to our question, what do you do when you want what you cannot have and see if the story can teach us something. I think there's some lessons here for us. But the story really can be broken down into what I've labeled the great deception and then the baby wars. So we go through this, it'll make a little more sense. Anyway, Jacob, after his encounter with God, continues on his way to Haran. He comes to this, this well where there's all these shepherds waiting around. It's a big well huge rock over the well, enters into a conversation, finds out that they can't move the rock until everybody gets there because it takes a couple guys to move the rock. Off in the distance is this shepherd coming who's named Rachel, ah, the daughter of Laban. He's in the right spot. In this little synopsis, you see all kinds of echoes, kind of hyperlinks back to when Isaac servant was looking for a wife, or Abraham's servant was looking for a wife for Isaac. Repeats that. Interesting thing happens. Rachel gets there. Jacob is kind of being macho. And what he does is he moves this huge rock by himself to water the sheep. Uh, Rabbinic tradition believes that Jacob was a giant. Huge, strong man. Meets Rachel, heads back, meets Laban. We're going to pick up the story there. Verse 15. After Jacob had stayed with him, that is Laban, for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your your wages should be. Now, In this story, you're going to have to read between the lines. You have to remember that Jacob is a con man. He's a deceiver. He's a schemer. Laban is even more so. So Laban looks like he's going to be a good guy here. Yeah, I I don't want you just to work for free. I want you to pay something. So they're going to negotiate. Now Laban sees this great opportunity, right? Because Jacob is this huge man. He's somebody he wants to work for him because he he can work him (laughs) to death. So he wants him. And he knows that Jacob is vulnerable, right? Because Jacob has no family at this point, no inheritance, no money. He's on the run. 
He's desperate. So Laban's up for making a deal. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So what the heck does it mean that uh, Leah had weak eyes? (laughs) She couldn't see? It's probably a reference to the fact that something was physically wrong with her that detracted from her attractiveness, right? Some suggest that she was cross-eyed. The reason you know it's something like that is because immediately we get a comparison of Leah with Rachel. And what is Rachel? Rachel is stunning. I mean, she, great figure, beautiful face. She's gorgeous. Now, in this story, you have to pay attention to the names, okay? Because in Hebrew literature, the names mean something. And it begins right here. Rachel's name, she comes from a shepherding family, okay? So her name means you, cute little animal. Leah's name, cow. (laughs) Cow. You get the point, don't you? I'm going to be very blunt. Uh, Leah's ugly, unattractive, but she has this gorgeous sister. Gorgeous sister. Um, And what we're told is that Jacob is in love with Rachel and not just kind of liking her, but head over heels, madly in love, desperate for her. You see this because he's, he, he's willing to make this incredibly bad deal, right? He says to Laban, I'll give you seven years. Now, you have to understand that the, the typical bride price was 30 to 40 shekels. That's the money you would give to the family of the bride, and it was a way of guaranteeing their security. So if you divorced the woman, she could go back to her family and they'd have enough money to take care of her. Bride price was typically 30 to 40 shekels. A shepherd, which Jacob is right now, would earn one and a half shekels a month, about 18 shekels a year. So a fair price would have been two years, maybe three. Uh, (laughs) Now Jacob says, man, I'll work seven. Seven. He's head over heels for Rachel. And remember, Laban is a con man, so he sees Jacob's vulnerability and he sees the opportunity. So notice what he says. He says, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man stay here with me. I want you to notice something. Laban doesn't say, okay, we have a deal. Jacob hears that. He hears yes. That's not what Laban says. See, Laban (laughs) sees an opportunity here. And we'll see how it plays out in just a minute. So after seven years, he wants his wife. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seem like only a few days because, I I mean, this guy's just head over heels. (laughs) You kind of laugh at him. But notice what happens, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, the seven years are up. 
And he, he has been pining away and lusting for Rachel for seven years. So this is what he says. Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. That's a delicate way. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. He basically says, give me a wife. I want to have sex with her. It's very blunt. It's very crude. It's outside the custom. But for seven years, he has been waiting. When you look at Jacob, you see somebody who is emotionally and sexually over, overwhelmed with a longing for Rachel. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is Jacob so in love with Rachel? Now, we're not told. We have to kind of read between the lines, but I don't think that is hard to do. Now, think about Jacob. He is broken, right? Jacob's father loved Esau, which was Jacob's older brother, more than he loved him. And Jacob grew up, what, rejected and second best and resentful and always, always wanting his father's approval, always wanting the blessing. I mean, the only person in Jacob's life who has loved him is his mom, Rebekah. But now she has even sent him away. Jacob has this huge gaping wound in his soul. And you know what he thinks? He thinks that Rachel can fill it. He's pinning all of his hope on her. If I get her, then finally something will go right in my life. I mean, she will take away my loneliness. She will fill up my emptiness. She will make me whole. She will love me as I want and need to be loved. You know, that kind of thinking is pretty unusual for that day and age. I mean, quite honestly, most marriages at that time uh, were not based on romantic love. They were economic arrangements. You, loved, you, you married for status and security, not because you were madly in love, not because of romance. That would be unusual for that day. Um, but you know something? It's, it's not unusual for our day, right? Our culture is all in when it comes to this idea of finding a soulmate, aren't we? I like Tim Keller's insight at this point. He's a New York pastor and author, and he talks, he talks about a man named Ernest Becker who won the Pulitzer Prize for his book called The Denial of Death. And in it, Becker argues that one of the ways secular people deal with the lack of God in their life is they try to fill the vacuum by what he calls apocalyptic sex and romance. Our, our culture has loaded its desire for transcendence into romance and love. It says, if I can just find the right person, that soulmate, they will meet my deepest needs for significance and security and transcendence. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. The longing for one true love has always been around, but in our culture now, it has been magnified. It is begging us to load all of the deepest needs of our hearts into romance and love and sex 
into finding that one true love. Because if we do, we think it will fix our lousy lives. That is what Jacob is doing. But you know the problem with that, that kind of thinking, (laughs) it almost always ends in disillusionment and disappointment. It's just not true that one person can be that for someone else. So verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave feast. It's traditional what you do if you're going to have a wedding. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. That was a traditional wedding gift. And then get this next line, when morning came, there was Leah. And you think, how, how did Jacob not know? What's going on? Well, remember in that culture when you have a bride, they're heavily veiled. They go through the ceremony, if there is a ceremony, they go through this feast, and at the feast, what does everybody do? They drink. So at the end of the feast, when the woman is given to the groom to take to his tent to consummate the marriage, I mean, Jacob is drunk. The woman is veiled, and he is deceived. He has sex with Leah. He consummates the marriage with Leah, and he discovers it in the morning. In the morning, it was Leah. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, Jacob is absolutely furious. He wasn't in love with Leah. He was in love with Rachel. Leah is not the one he wanted. Rachel was the one he wanted. He had been swindled by Laban. I mean, I understand what Laban was doing. He he had a problem, right? He, He didn't have a way of marrying off his older daughter because she was unattractive. She was ugly. Nobody wanted her. And now she's getting up there in age, and he's got to get rid of her. So Laban sees an opportunity. Never really agreed to the deal anyway. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, (laughs) it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish the daughter's bridal week, then you will give, we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Question for you. Jacob's huge, right? Big guy, powerful, strong. Why the heck doesn't he just kill Laban? I mean, why? I think it's because Jacob is having a moment of self-awareness. When he asks, why have you deceived me? The word there for deceived is the same word used to describe what Jacob had done to Isaac, his father. Remember the story. Jacob puts hair on his skin, sneaks into his father's tent. His 
father is in the darkness because he can't see and pretends that he's Esau so he can get the blessing. I think at that moment, Jacob's realizing that what Laban did to him, he did to his father. And then look at that phrase, it's not our custom here in our place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Laban is saying, I don't know what you guys do back home, but we respect the rights of the elder, the firstborn. We don't set those aside like you guys back there do. In other words, <laughs> we don't do what you did, Jacob. The eldest has to be married first. It's, it's a kind of Christian karma, poetic justice, right? What goes around comes around. Jacob deceived his father, now he is deceived. The author wants us to see that Jacob is treated in the same way he has treated others. This, this is God's discipline in Jacob's life that eventually will bring about transformation. Robert Alter, who is a great commentator on the book of Genesis, great Old Testament scholar, um, he quotes an ancient rabbinical commentator on this passage who imagines the conversation the next day between Jacob and Leah. Jacob says to Leah, I called out Rachel in the dark, and you answered, why did you do that to me? And Leah says to him, your father called out Esau in the dark, and you answered, why did you do that to him? Fury dies on his lips, cut to the quick. Suddenly the evil he has done has come to Jacob, and he sees what it is like to be manipulated and deceived, and meekly he picks up and works another seven years. Verse 28, and Jacob did so. Finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, and Laban gave his servant Billa to his daughter Rachel as her attendant, the custom. And Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love, note this, his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban for another seven years. We might want to think at this point that that is the end of the dysfunction in this family, that it stops there, but it doesn't. It continues as the family develops, in some ways gets worse in the next chapter of the story in the baby wars. Because both Leah and Rachel are just as broken as Jacob, and both are incredibly unhappy. I want to look at just a, a portion of the next, next chapter of the story, in a sense. And, and in this portion, you have to really pay attention to the name, so I'll try to explain them to you a bit. It's the baby wars. Leah, eventually Rebecca, uh, eventually Re Rachel has kids. But, but this next little section that has to do with Leah and how she names her kids is, is one of the most heartbreaking portions of Scripture. Okay, listen. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, and the word there for not loved literally means hated or scorned, 
enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. God looks down, sees that Leah is not loved. Jacob doesn't love her. Her sister doesn't love her. Laban doesn't love her. She is a girl that nobody wants. God says, at least I can do something for you. So she has kids. Verse 32. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Uh, the word for Reuben means to see, or sounds like the word to see. And she, he, 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 you know, Jacob thinks that love and romance and Rachel will fill him up. You know what Re Leah thinks? Leah thinks family will do it. She thinks if I have kids and they're boys and I give Jacob heirs, he'll love me. So I'm going to name him Reuben. Now, now my husband will see me. He'll notice me. He'll take note of me. I'll become something of significance to him. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Simeon is a name that sounds like the word to hear. Well, maybe now at least Jacob will listen to me. Give me a little attention. I mean, Jacob keeps making love to her because he has an obligation to have kids, and it has nothing to do with his feeling towards her. He hates her. So 33, or, or I'm sorry, chapter, uh, 34, again she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now... At last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And Levi, obviously, means connected or, or sounds like the verb to, to be attached. Leah has this incredible longing in her soul to be loved. She thought by having sons she could get it. And if she did, that would fix her lousy life. Jacob thought love would fix him. Leah thinks family would fix her. And I want you to imagine what life was like for her, right? Every day she saw the man she longed for in the arms of another, and just not another woman, but her sister, in whose shadow she had lived all her life, all her life. Rachel was the pretty one. Leah was the ugly one. I mean, Leah knew she was the girl nobody wanted. And the wound has to be incredibly deep. <laughs> and we think, well, at least Rachel's happy. No, Rachel isn't. In fact, uh, I'm going to skip a little bit and, and jump down to chapter 30, verse 1. We get a little insight into Rachel. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob... Uh, any children she became jealous of her sister so she said to Jacob give me children or I'll die and Jacob became angry with her and said am I in the place of God who's kept you who has kept you from having children she's not happy either everybody in this story wants something that they cannot have and yet somebody else has it Devastating. 
Okay, what I want to do is make a quick observation about these stories and then get back to and answer the original question, what do you do when you want something you cannot have? Here's, here's my profound observation. Are you ready for this? I want you to take note. This family is a mess. Totally dysfunctional. I mean, deeply. Uh, bigamy. <laughs> Jacob marries two sisters in the law. You're not supposed to marry your wife's sister. Polygamy. As the story goes on, he ends up with Bilhah and Zilpah, the two, two servants as concubines. In other words, four wives. This family is filled with deceit and lying and manipulation, not just by Laban, but Leah and Rachel. I mean, you don't think about this, but they had to be in on it from the beginning, right? Which tells you something about Rachel and Leah. They were willing to deceive Jacob. There's unrequited love. No one is happy. You, you know what's true in this story? There are no heroes. Everybody is messed up. And the family is messed up. You know, after 30 years of ministry, more than that, one of the things I have learned is that every family is dysfunctional. And I have not ever seen an exception. Oh, there's differences in degree. Some families are more messed up than other families. Don't mishear me. And... Some families hide their dysfunction better than other families. But no family escapes. You know why every family is dysfunctional? Because every person in that family is dysfunctional. <laughs> Let me put it in theological terms. We're sinners. Why do you think two sinners can get together and make something that's not sinful, that's not dysfunctional. We're, we're, we're dysfunctional. It's just a matter of degree. I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I look at my own family. I have a great family. I have incredibly great kids. I have a great wife. I mean, the last few years, they have Un, been unbelievably amazing. My wife is suffering from paralysis and she's getting better. I mean, great! And we are totally messed up and totally dysfunctional. There are fights, there are jealousies, there are arguments, there are people walking out of the house, there are stupid decisions, there's bad behavior, there's sin. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully not now, but when my girls were younger, I had to break up fist fights between my daughters. My daughters. And this is not when they were five and six. This is when they're adults. But we're great. And we are. And broken. And dysfunctional. Great, Nick, what's your point? Let me make my point. Take hope in the midst of your dysfunction. God can and does still, in the midst of dysfunctional families, work out his redemption. 
It's interesting, you look at Jacob's family out of the deceit and strife and dysfunction and jealousy and brokenness, emerges unrelenting grace. From these unions come the 12 tribes of Israel, and God's redemptive plan moves forward through the midst of the dysfunction of Jacob's family. It's the theme we've seen over and over again in Genesis, out of the chaos, God by his grace brings redemption. And not only could God bring, I'm going to put it this way, if God can bring redemption out of Jacob's family, yours is no problem. No problem. Don't miss that. Okay, back to the question. What do we do when we want what we cannot have? Um, Let me give you four responses to that question that I think come from this text. All right, four. First, learn to manage your desires. I think when it comes to our longings and desires, we, we have the sense that we're helpless victims, that we can't control what we want. You know, we might not act on those, but we can't change the desires themselves. And I don't think that's true. I mean, it's obvious we don't have to let the desires and longings dictate our lives and our actions. Uh, um, But I think we can go deeper than that. I really believe that we can shape and mold what we desire and what we want. So how do you do that? Well, I think... Part of it is by learning to say no to yourself. I mean, saying no is a learned skill. Uh, uh, um, in your inner world, you can tell yourself, I, I'm, no. I, you know, if you feed a desire, it grows. If you starve a desire, it dies. And you can tell yourself, I am not going to let this desire dominate my life. And over time, you can change your wants because your wants are simply an expression of how you think and what you value, and you have control over what you think and what you value. Those are subject to your will. Now, what that means is you have to do a lot of inner work. So you have to question your longings, become curious, investigate, ask yourself, why, why do I want what I want? I think, think, think if Jacob spent some time thinking, why am I so in love with Rachel? I know she's good looking and all that, but really... You know, oftentimes our longings, the immediate ones we feel, are simply the tip of the iceberg, and we need to go exploring down deep underneath and become self-aware. And the deeper we go, the better chance we have of seeing what the core issues are and experiencing healing there. And I think what that means, if we're going to do this well, we have to bring others into the struggle. I mean, isn't that the brilliance of AA and all the 10-step groups? There is some special power in community. When we bring our desires and our struggles into the light, because in the light, others can join in with us, they lose some of their power over us. When we keep them hidden, they become stronger and more powerful. 
And here's the thing, folks. I want you to understand this, that if we do not manage our desires, if our desires simply go unchecked, we will pay a high price. A high price. Externally and internally. I mean, think about it in this story, Jacob gets 14 years of his life because he can't control his lust for a woman. And he ends up with two unhappy and jealous women who barter for his affection. You see that in the rest of the story. Leah pays a huge price. Her life is a living hell pining away for Jacob, whose affection she never gets. And in a stroke of irony, we think, well, well at least Rachel's happened. No, she, <laughs> you know, she goes to Jacob and says, if I don't have kids, I'm going to die. Guess what? She dies. You know how she dies? She has Joseph. And a few la- years later, right after having Joseph, she says, I want more. She has more. She has Benjamin. And when she has Benjamin, she dies in childbirth. Irony. So learn to manage your desires. Second, don't compare. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 30 says, when Rachel saw that she was uh, not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Became jealous. Of, in other words, what prompted her dissatisfaction with her life was looking at her sister and saying, I don't have what she has. Comparison is often the seed of discontent. It's hard to, to not have what you want and to want something you cannot have. But when you see somebody else get what you wanted, oh, that, that, that's worse. And when it happens, we begin to compare. We compare, uh, well, I want mar- my marriage to be like their marriage. I want uh, my looks to be like, right, as good as their looks. I want my financial situation to be as good as their financial. I want my health to be like their health. And what happens when you begin to do that is you start to be jealous I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but jealousy is a strange sin. Most sins give you at least some pleasure. Jealousy gives you none. It just reinforces your pain. Rachel just makes herself more and more miserable as she compares her life to her sister's and sees the kids she doesn't have. You know what happens when we compare? We we forget. First of all, we forget that we are called to walk our own paths. Uh, And it's ridiculous to compare our lives to to someone else's because, one, we don't know their whole story. But you will always find people who are in better shape than you and worse. When we in Craig Hospital, one of the first things I realized, Barb's there. She can't move at that point hardly at all. And, And the natural thing is you look around and you look at the paraplegics and say, well, maybe if she only lost the use of her legs. And then you look at the, the quadriplegics, the one who worse than Barb can't move anything, not even their heads, or the ones who are on vents, or the ones who have brain damage, and, and suddenly go, well, maybe we don't have it so bad. Now, I realize you just can't compare because you don't know other people's stories, and the reality is you're called to walk your own path. And when you start comparing... You know what? You begin to miss what you have. Rachel takes Jacob's love for granted. 
She never really understands what a gift that is. Leah takes having sons for granted and misses the incredible role she plays in God's story. And here's the truth. God may not give us what we want, but he will give us what we need to fulfill his desires and will. And in the end, he'll redeem it all, so be content. You know what the the antidote to comparison is? Acceptance and gratitude. I've been wrestling with this. As I look at my situation and I look at other people, and you know what I do? I compare. I'm in retirement and I'm not going to get to travel like those people do. And we're not going to get to do those fun things that those kind of people do. And our life... It's just the situation. My, my wife is struggling. She, she's an incomplete quad. It limits her life. It limits my life. I mean, somebody has to be with her almost 24-7. Man, it, it's easy to compare. You know what I did the other day? I sat down with a piece of paper. On, I, I figured out that my life is extremes. I sat down and, and listed all the crappy things that have happened in the last two or three years. It was a long list. But you know what then what I did? I listed all the incredible things that have happened in the last three years. And it's an incredible list. My kids have been amazing. My church has been amazing. The progress Barb has made has been amazing. I don't get to do everything I want, but my life is good. You accept and you become grateful. Third thing, manage your desires. Don't compare. Third, realize you'll never be satisfied. We want and we want. And even when we get what we want, in the morning, it's Leah. It's Leah. Leah has kids, and it doesn't satisfy us. She still pines away for, for love. Rachel has Jacob, but he doesn't satisfy us. He's not enough. Without kids, she will die. Jacob, he gets Rachel, and he thinks, ah, oh, at least he's happy. Not really, because what he wants out of Rachel is for her to love him. And, and if you read through the text, one of the things you realize is she doesn't. She tells him, hey, if you don't give me kids, I'm going to die. In other words, Jacob, you're not enough. You don't do for me what... I do for you. You're not enough. In the end, desires fulfilled do not ultimately satisfy. I mean, think about it. You get things and possessions. They give you a moment of passing fulfillment. Then eventually they all fall apart. Romantic love. Oh, yeah, our culture, right? Apocalyptic sex and romance. It's a lie. Love fades. All the research says that that initial infatuation that gives you all those endorphins that make love such a great feeling at best lasts two years. And then you're back to reality. And it's Leah. And the reality hits you that no person can meet all the needs you have and fill up your emptiness. I mean, it's true with friends. Friends come and go, and eventually death gets the best of them. Power, no matter how powerful you get, you always want more, and eventually you lose it. Health, no matter how hard you work to stay healthy. I have news for you. 
Write it down. You're going to die. Right? I don't care how well you eat, how much you work out. The end is not good. You see it with Rachel. She finally gets pregnant. You think, ah, you got what you wanted. The first thing out of her mouth is, God, give me more. It's never enough. See, all through life there runs this note of cosmic disappointment. There are some things we will never have, and there are desires that will never be met. And God will not meet some longings and emotional wants. We will live with cosmic disappointment. Nobody has said this better than C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He writes this. He says, most people, if they, are really, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give you but never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or first take some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The spouse may be a good spouse and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent and the chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. The truth in life is you're going to go to bed with who you think is Rachel, but you're going to get up, and it's Leah. The last thing, and I'll end with this. Understand, understand, that what we really want and ultimately need is God. You go to this story, and there are no heroes. <laughs> I don't know that there's even anybody we like. But at least with Leah, you get a glimmer of hope, right? Leah's interesting. Two reasons. One, when she prays to God that mournful prayer about wanting to be seen and heard and attached by her husband, she uses what is known as the personal name for God. She doesn't use Elohim, which is the generic name for God, but she uses Yahweh, which indicates she knows God in a real personal way. And what's really fascinating, after the first three sons, she gets to a fourth son. And she says this, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And the word Judah means praise. And then she stopped having kids. What happened? That's the author's way of letting us know that she's finally taken her heart's deepest hopes off her husband and her children and now has put him 
in the Lord. Could it be that God allows us to have unfulfilled desires and wants and longings so that we seek him? So that we get wise enough to understand that there's nothing in life that will really satisfy other than him. I mean, God is the only one who lasts forever. The only one that we really want to be seen by and heard by and attached to. The only one who ultimately counts and satisfies the only one who can really meet our deepest longings and needs, the only one who can give us meaning and purpose and forgiveness and peace and community and eternal life. You know, there's an old game. I I have three grandkids now. They were on the plus side of the good things in life. Every once in a while, I'll play a little game with them. I'll put a treat or a coin in my hand. And then Emmeline or Madeline, they have to come and what do they have to do is they have to try and pry my hand open to get the prize. And like little kids, when they finally get the prize, you know what they do? They push my hand away. So why do I do it? put those little things in my hand that they desire so that they come to me. I wonder if God puts desires in our hearts so that we come to him. So someday we will realize it's not the thing we want. It's him we want. And will the day ever come where we pry open his hand and throw the prize away and just keep our hand in his because he's what we really want. Let's pray. Father, help us. (laughs) We all live with things we want that we cannot have. May they teach us that what we should What we need to want and what we truly need is simply you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. For his glory and his sake. Amen.